2: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
3: As to London, we must console ourselves with the thought that if life outside is less poetic than it was in the days of old, inwardly, its poetry is much deeper. Goldwyn Smith. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there.
2: It does seem that everyone's got a story
3: to tell.
1: I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Wallace.
3: They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that?
1: A little bit <laughs> pathetic. <laughs>
3: So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless Yeah, they're banning
1: soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush.
3: Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon?
0: Listen, you're all idiots. You know, not want to culture or anything
3: <laughs> No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff.
1: You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic.
3: (laughs) How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible.
2: London life is a really rich experience and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson weighs as much as
1: 40 school children.
3: What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Monday, August the 20th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Hello, hello, hello. Well, it's good news and bad news this week. The good news is that we've got an exclusive. Yes, we're going to be taking a tour of the Jewish East End with Rachel Kolsky, she who knows all there is to know about exactly that subject, starting off at Liverpool Street Station and, uh, well, heading in the direction of Brick Lane. The bad news, and it's really serious, actually, uh, it turns out London doesn't exist. I was surprised as well. But given that the show and the site are predicated on the idea that it does, I think this is probably worthy of a few moments. Breakdown. Uh, First of all, you've got the the definition of what London is. And of course, the definition on something like Wikipedia uh, gives it as being the combination of Greater London plus the tiny city of London. Um, The the whole square mile thing is a little bit uh, of a problem in itself. Uh, There is no definition, though, beyond Wikipedia that the uh, definition of London being Greater London plus the square mile actually exists in officialdom. As a further complication, inner and middle temples, ostensibly in in the city of London, are actually usually treated as extra-parochial areas, so in that sense they're not part of the city, and therefore part of neither London uh, nor Greater London. Well, that gets us off to a a bad start. Um, Also, it turns out that there is no formal indication in legislation or anything like that uh, nothing in constitution that that decrees that london is the capital of the uk it's by convention rather than by anything else in fact the only political entity that gives london the official moniker of london is the european parliamentary constituency and uh, according once again to wikipedia this is synonymous with the region of greater london i.e not including the city but that seems to be either a mistake or shorthand for Greater London and the City of London, as the City of London does have representation on the European Parliament. So basically this is the big argument for staying in Europe, because if we pull out of Europe, then London will cease to exist. All very troubling. There's a wonderful article about this on the site Londonist this week, Do take a look, and the comments section is even more illuminating, I would argue, than the article itself. There's a particularly fantastic piece here from Michael Jennings, who clearly knows his history and his uh, administrative boundaries and jurisdictions. He talks about the Metropolitan Police District, the London Postal District, all of these things, and uh, essentially comes to the same conclusion that the waters are muddied. We could stick to our conventional Idea that London is everything within the M25, of course, but even then, well, that's going to ruffle some feathers. I should have thought. Well, there we go. So, the the bad news to start the week with is that your city doesn't exist. Sorry about that. Actually, if we're splitting hairs, and by, by Jove, we are splitting hairs, there are two cities in London, and there's the city of London and there's the city of Westminster. And if you live not in one of those areas then in fact you don't live in a city at all even if you live in the inner city that's not in a city unless it's in a city so what's on in what used to be london this week let's take a look at the arts week ahead Well, our theatre highlight this week is a new musical called Soul Sister. John Miller and Pete Brooks's new show is inspired by the music life and times of musicians Ike and Tina Turner. It's transferring to the West End Savoy Theatre for a limited run following a premiere at the Hackney Empire earlier this year. Starring Emmy Wakoma and Chris Tummings as the famously destructive couple Soul Sister, features the classic songs What's Love Got To Do With It, Private Dancer, River Deep, Mountain High and, of course, Simply The Best. Soul Sister opens on Thursday. It runs until the 29th of September. Tickets cost between 25 and 57 50 And you can visit atgtickets.com forward slash Savoy for more information. A unique art exhibition opens at the Cork Street Gallery this week. From Thursday the 23rd of August you can visit the 5th annual Cork Street Open exhibition which provides an opportunity for both emerging and established artists from around the world to gain exposure and sell their work while benefiting a charity. Cork Street Open features around 200 paintings, prints, photos and sculpture. The event supports Centrepoint, a charity for young homeless people, through a ticketed private view on the twenty second of August. Visit cork street open for more. Fans of international comedy are in luck this week as the priceless London Wonderground welcomes Australia's most-wanted comedian. Heath Franklin's chopper is headbutting his way back to London from the Olympics to mangoes, Switzerland to anti-smoking ads. Nothing's safe from a punch in the soft guts by the international ambassador of hard... Yes, Heath Franklin's Chopper opens on Monday. It runs until Friday as part of the South Bank Centre's Festival of the World. Tickets for the hour-long show cost around 15 pounds and the show is suitable for everyone over 15. Visit the South Bank Centre website for more. The Northalla Fields in West London are hosting an interesting-sounding performance on Friday this week. Constructed from the rubble from the original Wembley Stadium, the fields have been transformed into an environmental art and performance space during the uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games. On Friday, the hills will be transformed by sound and fire into a ritual landscape, making the journey of the Paralympic flame. Part of the Mayor of London presents a summer like no other, Wow, what a title. The performance starts around 8pm on the 24th of August. It's free as well. Visit molpresents.com forward slash secrets. And finally, they feared it would never happen, but it is happening, the Notting Hill Carnival. It's on uh, this weekend. It's Europe's biggest street festival, and West London, of course, will be packed with steel bands, calypso music, and amazing food stores. The Carnival bands start around 9am on Sunday, and Monday mornings, look out for the steel band competition on the Saturday. Or treat your kids to a view of the shorter route on the Sunday, the same day as prizes for the best costumes are awarded. It's all free. Uh, well, not the food, isn't it? But the other stuff, the Carnival Floats, is free, and there's lots to see and do. Visit Nottinghillcarnival.com to find out more. And, of course, you can find out much more about all of those events and many more besides, as well as the news stories touched on today at Londonist.com. Well, there's a couple of ways to waste your precious time revealed in the last few days on Londonist. The first one, well, Mrs. Brown's been at it again. Yes, the, uh, <laughs> the the doyenne of Needlecraft uh, has flacked her knitting needles together once again, and she's cooked up for us the GB Olympic team. Well, not all of them, but the key members, Andy Murray, Mo Farah, Jessica Ennis, and Bradley Wiggins, in woolly form, and <laughs> they're, they're fantastic, and they are depicted with a dangle boris, Yes, it's Boris Johnson, complete with uh, fuzzy haircut, getting stuck on his zip wire, all knitted and available to see on the Londonist site. Right, You might remember that Heather Brown also knitted the candidates for the mayoral race a little while back. I wonder if that's where the Boris uh, came from. I wonder how long, in fact, before she's got an entire... Uh, cabinet full of celebrity knitted dolls can't be too far away I would have thought I think the original plan was to cook up caricatures of the entire GB squad, uh, certainly the gold winners, but she ran out of wool these are quite impressive though, do take a look the figurines are 6-7cm to seven centimeters tall as can be seen from the cocktail stick javelin clutched by Jess Ennis That's a good way to waste some time. Another way to waste some time is to look at the air traffic above London. This is a great app. I thought I wasn't going to get sucked into this, and I was wrong. And you simply click on the link. It's planefinder.net, and it shows exactly what's going on above the skies of the town formerly known as London and you can see the sort of swirling patterns that the aircraft are obliged to take if you're familiar with the bits of London over which the planes fly you'll spot them as they make their descent into Heathrow or indeed as they launch out in the uh, session I looked at yesterday they were heading off towards the west I think that's what happens anyway and uh, you you can track their flight numbers and so forth probably pretty handy if you wanted to see whether a loved one is about to touch down anytime soon make sure their flight's on its way in or if you're just a bit of a geek and you want to look at planes it's kind of a pac-man look to it really I'm not saying it's the most exciting way to spend time, hence the way I introduced this article. Uh, But do have a look. Heathrow was expecting 120,000 passengers at the last day of the Olympics as people packed their bags and cleared off out of it. And uh, that was about 30% above the normal levels. Obviously what the website is missing is the ability for users to log in and control the planes themselves. But I'm sure that's a feature that's in development at the moment. Uh, This week's quiz. Are you ready for it? Here we go. 13th of August 1977. Hundreds of protesters clashed with police at a national front march in Lewisham. About 400 members of another group had gathered to try to prevent the National Front march, but had been prevented themselves by police, leading to attacks on the police and over 200 arrests. So which other group are we talking about? Who was it trying to stop the National Front in 77? Tuesday, the 14th of August, 1821. Whose funeral procession brought about two deaths in London? 14th of August, 1821. Hmm. That's a pretty tough one. Wednesday. And now it's the 15th of August, but what I want is the year. Princess Elizabeth, of course she was known at the time, gives birth to her second child, Anne Elizabeth Alice Louise. That's Princess Anne in real money, who would later become the Princess Royal at Clarence House in central London. And I want the year in which she was born, to the exact year, I think, for that one place. Thursday, the 16th of August, 2001. Princess Diana's former butler, Paul Burrell, is charged with theft from her estate. Amidst some controversy, the subsequent trial would later collapse as who recalled a conversation suggesting that Burrell was merely storing Princess Di's belongings. So who was that key witness? Friday, 17th of August, 1896. A woman named Bridget Driscoll, becomes what is reported to be the first ever person to achieve what distinction hmm. and i'll give you a clue you'd label her as a pedestrian yeah okay there's your questions now i bet there's nothing you'd like more than for somebody to come knocking at your door with a gift of vegetables am i right of course i am who wouldn't want Good vegetables delivered to to your door. Here at Londonist, we want to give you free food. And the way to, to get that free food is to go to riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist, where you can find yourself a half-price vegetable box. Yes, it's fresh, seasonal, organic veg, fruit and meat delivered to you for half price thanks to Riverford and the Londonist. Uh, I'll give you the lowdown there. You, you click on the link and it takes you to an Aladdin's cave of produce. Pick your seasonal vegetable boxes, and it's all organic and very healthy and very tasty looking, and uh, and couldn't be easier. They're going to bring it to you. So that's riverforward.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Without further ado, let's go to the East End of London where I caught up with Rachel Kolsky and uh, there's a bit of background noise at the beginning of this feature. We basically had a choice between a very windy, noisy day outside or a not-at-all-windy, noisy day in the station. I opted for the latter. I hope you'll forgive that. And I hope you'll enjoy the tour of the Jewish East End.
1: We're at Liverpool Street Station this morning and uh, for a tour of the Jewish East End where I, the classic tour of the Jewish East End is in and around Brick Lane but if I have the opportunity I think it's always nice to begin here at Liverpool Street Station by... The Transport Memorial. When you look at this memorial, um, you can see a group of children, they're well-dressed, they're well-fed, they look healthy, uh, they seem to come from what we, what we used to call middle-class backgrounds, they've got toys, they've got musical instruments, but the story behind this memorial is really, really poignant and very, very sad. What was happening in, um, in Europe, Nazi Europe in the 1930s, was the Jewish population and, and other groups were being Persecuted and a number of people felt it would be wonderful if the lives of some of those the children in Germany and Austria could be saved so through groups of uh, like minded people who raised money, the British government agreed to allow ten thousand children unaccompanied children without their parents into Britain as long as they had a guarantor for say fifty, 50 pounds per person. The money was raised and um, The trains started running out of Berlin in December 1938, then Austria a week or so later, and then the last trains left Europe in August 1939, just before the Second World War began.
3: So this is Jewish parents in those countries saying goodbye to their kids for the final time, knowing that the well, the, the, the rise of Nazism was, was already in full bloom, wasn't it?
1: It really was one of the most selfless things anybody could do, because uh, the parents of the children, who weren't uh, all, all Jewish, they weren't all Jewish, they mostly aged between a few months to around 17 years of age, and they were mostly uh, girls, as it happened. But the parents could only hope that their children were going to go to a refuge. It really was the most amazing thing they, that they did. They never knew if they were going to see their children again the children never knew if they were going to see their parents again and the reason the memorial is here at Liverpool Street Station is because those children took the journey across Germany, you know, from Austria, on a ferry, arrived at the hook of went to Hook of Holland, arrived at Harwich and then got on trains which arrived typically here at Liverpool Street Station. So for these children, this Liverpool Street Station, the edge of the city and what was then known as the, the East End, the Jewish East End, was the first glimpse of London that, that they saw. Now most of those children out of the 10,000 that were allowed to arrive, around 9,500 actually made it to Great Britain and they were distributed, dispersed all around the country. Um, for instance, some of them went up and North, the Quakers uh, did a lot of work to help uh, find billets uh, for the children. And the experiences that they had differed greatly. So some children, I-, I use the term lucky in inverted commas, obviously they'd had to leave their parents, were lucky enough to um, be given a billet at Waddesdon Manor with the Rothschilds. But other children were sent to billets where they were used uh, as little more than sort of unpaid, you know, as- assistance in the in the homes. Um, some of the children um, received letters from their parents and some of the children were reunited with their parents at the end of the war. But uh, many of them, in fact most of them, uh, didn't. And as far as their Judaism went, um, if, if they were Jewish, um, some of them you know, sort of lost their Judaism immediately if they went into homes or they, or they wanted to forget, uh, to forget about it. And the story of the Kindertransport is actually... One that's only come to the general public relatively recently. It wasn't until the late 1980s, when it was like the 50th anniversary of the Kinder transport, that um, a number of Kinder thought the story should be told. One lady in particular, she's called Bertha Leviton. She did a lot of work to get a big reunion of the Kinder. And lots of stories that basically had never been told uh, because so, so painful began to be told to the children to their grandchildren or to to their great-grandchildren and so it was decided to uh, commemorate the um the kinder transport here the first memorial here was a uh, a perspex suitcase filled with things that kinder had brought over like um, a hanger or a little teddy bear but the environment here with the rain the condensation got in and it had to be taken away. And so in 2006, uh, this beautiful new um, memorial was unveiled, and it's been sculpted by somebody called Frank Meisler. Now, if you say Frank Meisler to a lot of people, they'll immediately say, oh, you know, the Israeli sculptor. Well, indeed, he does live in Israel, and he does beautiful um, um they're almost ornaments, they beautiful in silver, of Jerusalem and things like that. But he was one of the kinder. He came over from Danzig, now Gdansk, at the age of 10. And he came over to England, um, never saw his parents again, and he went to live in Israel in 1960. So hence people say he's Israeli. And um, there's an, a couple of other kinder transport memorials like this where... You can see the kind of children that, that were able to come over. And um, if you look close at the memorial, you'll see there are railway tracks to represent the train journey and also there are lots of little plaques with names of towns indicating the different towns and cities that the children came from and you'll find similar memorials in Gdansk his hometown and also Berlin as well the original um, sculptor who made the, the suitcase uh, she just literally last year had a new sculpt sculpture unveiled here at Liverpool Street Station if you go downstairs we're not going to go downstairs but if you hop downstairs to the entrance of the tube you'll see a smaller sculpture uh, representing and commemorating the kinder and it isn't just to represent the kinder by the way it's also to say thank you to britain for allowing them in and so floor kent the other sculptors um has done a small sculpture with a couple of other children as as well and that was unveiled by sir nicholas winton a gentleman who's now 102 years old bless him who did a lot of work in czechoslovakia and uh, europe to get children out to safety to come to britain
3: so alongside the the plan, the orchestrated liquidation of Jewish people in Europe. This was sort of a further dilution, wasn't it? With, with the children going and not necessarily continuing to, to practice Judaism.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but they were saved. They were saved, and a lot of people and while the, they went through the most horrendous traumas a lot of them went on to find love they got married they had children of their own and a lot of people when they, when they look back at what happened in Europe you can't undo what happened but uh, people say you know people lived they survived they've got their own families and that is a form of a victory over what happened uh, during the Second World War
3: and did a lot of those people in that diaspora find their way back to the Jewish faith
1: um, some some did and, and some and some didn't some uh, some people led totally um, a religious lives religion had no place in their life whatsoever I think one of the things to also bear in mind about the um, the 1930s emigres from Europe um, particularly the Jew- Jewish emigrates from Europe was that they were German an Austrian first and Jewish second in many cases in their, in the minds the way they perceived themselves. They were educated they were urban, they were assimilated and their Judaism really didn't necessarily play a very important part in their lives a lot of them, you know um, a lot of the couples were, one was Jewish and one wasn't Jewish, a lot of the uh, children on the Kindertransport were children of a Jewish and a non-Jewish parent and religion hadn't played any part in their lives and a lot of people in, in the 1930s, uh, their Judaism was thrust upon them by what was happening in Europe. It wasn't actually part of their day-to-day life um, at all.
3: And did Jewish people coming to the UK, coming to London and, and fleeing this persecution in Europe do they find themselves asserting their Jewishness more as a a sort of a means of asserting an identity Uh,
1: It's interesting, what what actually happened, it it was that um, the emigres that came to London typically did not come to the Jewish East End, which is just just on the just next door to where we're standing out, Liverpool Street Station, they typically went to Northwest London, NW2 and NW6 is what we normally say Belsize Park, Swiss Cottage, um, you know in and around Finchley Road and um, nowadays that is such an aspirational area. It's very difficult when people visit that area to think, gracious me, you know, people that came out with nothing came to live here. But by the 1930s those huge beautiful houses uh, if you know London you might be able to picture them big, big houses you know, with rooms for servants had been subdivided into lots of little bedsits. It was shabby one one girl, one a young girl who came over with her parents um, later became an author, she actually described it as shabby and so they went to um, uh, North West London, where there were like-minded people, people who were urban, literary, cultured—you know, musicians, um, writers—and it was that that was the defining feature. Not necessarily the Judaism; um, it was their interests that um, that uh, uh, formulated the coherent group. That said, uh, synagogues did get um, established with the emigres, but typically, uh, again, quite polarised. If you were if you were orthodox and observant, you typically went to say to Golders Green. But in the Belsize Parkhurst cottage area, synagogues were established, which were what we'd call today maybe um, Reform, liberal, where uh, there was more in English. You know, you you didn't nec- you weren't so observant, but you did want to um, you did want to recognise your, your Judaism and your identity.
3: Let's move to our next location. Where are we going next?
1: What we're going to do, we're going to skip through Liverpool Street Station, so past the giant arrivals and departure board, and we're going to come out the other side on the main entrance at Bishopsgate.
3: Well, in case you're recreating this voyage or you're following us on a map, we are now heading from Liverpool Street Station. We're on Bishopsgate now. I'm following Rachel Kolsky, who is speeding ahead at a rate of knots. There's a a trail of fire on the sidewalk behind her. I was very interested to discover that a lot of your customers are repeat customers. I, I sort of imagined it would be people turning up and doing the one but you don't do—you don't really do tourists.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. So many of my, my clients, I repeat, are repeat, are very loyal to me and uh, they book me and rebook me and um, we're constantly discovering new areas of London together. So it's, it's really, really lovely. And sometimes people actually come on some of my tours and they say, oh, Rachel, it's just like a party because everybody recognises other people from other tours. They say, <laughs> hi, how are you? You know, what, where have you been recently? Which other tours have you been on? And um, it's really lovely and smiley and happy. So
3: This is surely the perfect moment to mention your website so that people can see what other tours are available often sold out very quickly to say.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. It's uh, www.golondontours.com
3: And we're in the we're shadow of
1: cross the road and oh. please everybody always remember to cross roads safely. Wait for the electronic man to be green, please.
3: You heard it here first. We're in the <laughs> we're in the shadow of the RBS Building. I don't think I'm going to wait for the green man <laughs> I'm going to break rule number one already the daredevil well I can give you the exclusive news that Rachel Kolsky also did not wait for the green man there so snitch uh... <laughs> don't listen to a word she says <laughs> an entire stand of unused Boris bikes. What's going on there?
1: It's quite funny about the Boris bikes because they position the Boris bikes where there's typically very wide pavements. But when you're a guide and you've got a group of people, you typically like to use those wide pavements. And I'm finding that in certain places in London where I used to stand with my group quite easily, um, there's now a a row of Boris bikes um, uh, in in my space. Oh, look. Oh, look. Oh, look. There's, um, is it Mandeville or Wenlock?
3: Mandeville, a pearly Mandeville. And
1: he's dressed as a pearly king. He's pearly Mandeville. Oh, bless. Oh, he's, you've got a hand it. He looks cute, no?
3: Pictures on website. <laughs> <laughs> We're now at Spitalfields.
1: You've now reached what people typically call today Spitalfields or Spitalfields Market. And if you look around you, what you can see are um, um, uh, a large number of tall glass-and-steel buildings. That's a a little bit of what we call the city encroaching upon the old east end. But if you look um, around you, as well as seeing the big new office blocks, you will also see some of the earlier buildings as well, some of the the buildings which are shops at uh, ground level and offices above, which gives you an idea of what this area used to look like. Um, you do have to use your imagination a little bit when you walk around the of fields and Brick Lane if you want to sort of um, discover what we used to call the old Jewish, the Jewish East End. And um, that's because so much of it has been um, eradicated over the years with, with demolition. But what's wonderful about the area is that if you actually take an opportunity to walk around, stop at a few places, really look at what you can see. There's still lots of the memories of the Jewish stand here today as well. We're now really on the, on the edge of what people typically call the old, the old Jewish East End. The Jewish East End as, a con, as an area was Quite short-lived, shorter lived than most people think, really, mainly from the late 19th century to the interwar years between the First and Second World War. And um, as we walk around, you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. There are lots of memories here to remind us of that Jewish community. Um, But one should also remember that this area has always been a haven for other immigrant groups as well. And the memories of those are also really sort of sort of entwined within the buildings and streets here. Most notably the uh, French Huguenots who came over here in the late 17th century and then of course after the Second World War when the Bengali community started to develop and uh, today of course for the younger generation, sadly of which I'm no longer a member, but for the younger generation um, if they come to the Spitalfields area it really is a shopping shopping, eating extravaganza and very much a curry, a curry capital of London as some people like to call it but we're going to concentrate on, on the Jewish, um, the Jewish uh, experiences here. And I mentioned that it's called Spitalfields. It, the area takes its name from the uh, Priory of St. Mary's Spital, which was established uh, centuries and centuries ago. The Priory of St. Mary's Spital was one of numerous religious, what we call religious houses dotted around the country. Uh, that would be a priory, an abbey, a monastery, a nunnery. And they, there was typically uh, nuns or monks uh, living there. And they... they um
0: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
1: didn't just worship and sort of have their own community, they did a lot of what we'd call today outreach, they provided hospital care, they provided inns for travellers, they had orchards, they had fish ponds, they had bakeries, they were really like mini villages um, in themselves and uh, King Henry VIII in the 1530s dissolved them, we typically call that in the history dissolution of the the monasteries and uh, they were massive landowners so what happened was the land was appropriated by King Henry VIII and uh, and was redistributed to his favourite courtiers or indeed some was kept for the royal family um, themselves so it sort of went in a lot of the land went into private hands and hence could then be what we'd call go into property development which is why the areas changed so rapidly and,
3: and presumably at exactly that point they've lost a lot of their uh, cottage industry
1: um, well, yes, once uh, they'd been uh, dissolved. I mean, it, it actually had big impacts on London. For instance, like uh, where would where would people go to get uh, medical medical care? You know, and in fact, St Bartholomew's Hospital, the one at Smithfield, was actually re-endowed by King Henry VIII. There was a sudden sort of, you know, oh my goodness, you know. So occasionally, um, was the um, the effects of what had happened were were recognised, but absolutely it had a they, it had a massive effect on on the public at large, more so than probably people people really think. But uh, what grew up in this area, Spitalfields, was um, a fruit and vegetable market. Uh, from the 1680s onwards, there was a massive fruit and vegetable market here, from um, the 1680s to 1991, when it didn't close down, but it relocated to Temple Mills. And one of the one of the glorious things about uh, London is how um, well, how large it is, and how everything dovetails and when it moved in 1991 to temple mills nobody really knew where temple mills was it could have been it could have been anywhere however now everybody knows because anybody that went to the olympic park on the northern side would have seen the signs to the new Spitalfields market so it's had a now everybody goes oh you know, so that's where it went anyway for our purposes today you can see um a brand new um development of shops and offices the old Spitalfields market buildings from the 1880s still remain. We're going to walk past those. And for the Jewish community, who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland in the late 19th century, so many of them made their home here. I would say, just to give you a couple of statistics, just to put what you're going to hear in some form of context. The Jewish East End was around two square miles. At its height, it probably had around 125,000 Jewish people living here. And there were probably around 65 synagogues. So that gives you an idea of the Density. And to give you the boundaries, um, these are my boundaries. Other people might want to contest them, but these are my boundaries. Um, east, uh, western side would be the boundary with the City of London, near where we are at the moment. Um, the eastern side would probably be Bedette Road in a mile and two. Southern side, Cable Street, and then North uh, Bethnal Green Road. Now, of course, Jewish people lived, you know, north, south, east, and west of those boundaries, but that's where the concentration was. And when one pictures the Jewish community of that time, one typically pictures poverty, hard work and and in truth that's what what it was poverty and hard work and people typically think of uh, what we call the schmutter trade, the rag trade, the clothing tailoring trade, particularly the sweated tailoring trade but um, I should also say that a lot of Jewish people um, went into the furniture trade although typically that was at the northern end of the East End towards what we know today as Shoreditch but a lot of them were in the fruit and vegetable trade as well. So, so many Jewish families had their livelihood from when the fruit and vegetable market was here. Was
3: the rise of particularly that density of Jewish population the sudden thing, or did it gradually grow up?
1: The, the Jewish community, to give, to give a very, again, to give a little brief historical perspective, I suppose, uh, together with the statistics, um, the Jewish, there was a medieval Jewish community in London. Uh, the Jewish community in Great Britain was expelled by King Edward I in 1290. And when the Jewish community was allowed back into England, we call it the resettlement, in 1656... By Oliver Cromwell. They settled not in the middle of the city of London where the medieval Jewish community was, but on the edge of the city at what we now call Aldgate. And gradually, you know, the Jewish community grew, what I call by natural growth. You know, people meet, they get married, they have children. Uh, A large number, considerable number of Jewish people came over from Germany in the 1700s. They were economic migrants as much as anything else. But um, so by the middle of the 19th century, there were probably around 40,000 Jewish people in London and then in the early 1880s after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in Russia that's what began the unprecedented uh, mass uh, emigration from Eastern Europe and immigration into Britain. Is this the pogroms? Yes, because nobody really knew who was behind the plot to assassinate the Tsar but it was considered to be a Jewish plot and that's when that unprecedented uh, amount of persecution, the pogroms Um, um, ability to travel to earn your living from your profession it was all curtailed and that's when so many Jewish people left the shores it has to be said a lot of them wanted to go to America and they ended up here Um, but a lot of them planned to go to America but you know in in the end stage so there was a rapid growth there was a rapid growth from the 1880s onwards when tens of thousands came in until the early 20th century when various Acts of Parliament were passed to try and prevent um, mass, mass immigration.
3: Yes, this, mu- this must have ruffled some feathers, this level of uh, arrival of one particular group.
1: Yes, and interestingly enough, the feathers were ruffled within the Jewish community as well because by that time, by the 1880s, the earlier Jewish uh, settlers who had established themselves, worked hard to remove the civic disabilities uh, from the Jewish community, they were... Some of them were very wealthy. They had friends in high places. Um, you know, there had been a Jewish Lord Mayor, Jewish MPs. Um, the first Jewish Lord was about to come. They tried to emulate English aristocracy in quite a lot. They liked wearing top hats. You know, frock coats to synagogues. You J- know, Jewish something. Prime Minister. <laughs> and um, well, um, by that you mean Benjamin Disraeli. He um, he was Jewish born, but he, at the age of twelve he'd been converted to Christianity. So he was Jewish born, but would never have been able to enter. Parliament and have the successful parliamentary career that he had um, if he had um, if he'd remained Jewish yeah so very interesting a lot of the members of the Jewish community actually were saying send them back We don't don't allow them in because they the people coming in were poor they were bedraggled you know they didn't the English establishment didn't want to be associated with them so yes you and you would you would it's all on record you know people saying no um, you know send them back to Russia send them on to America but there were also highly principled people who one of one of my favourites is David Frederick MacArthur who basically said you know who you know you know. Who are we to close our doors to those who are being persecuted for following the same religion as ourselves? And so when you had highly principled people like that, uh, and they worked really hard to, um, to give refuge to the Jewish immigrants immigrants coming in. So the fruit and vegetable market, no more, but the memories live on. Uh, There are plenty of people alive today whose families earned their living from working here at the market. Maybe banana wholesalers or banana uh, secondary wholesalers, as they were sometimes called. Uh, People earned their livings by being banana ripeners. So, um, and you hear these wonderful stories. Somebody told me one on my tour a few months ago about um, one of the banana ripeners um, collecting all the spiders and tarantulas that arrived in the cases of bananas and saving them all, and then giving them to London Zoo. So, and I think it's a delightful story, and it really brings uh, what that what life must have been like here a little bit a little bit to life. But anyway, shall we move on? We're going to walk uh, down past Littlefield's market. Uh, Swickerfield's market will be on your left-hand side as we walk down.
3: And this is Brushfield Street. In front of us, a tall, white church. Which... I I was convinced that was the White Chapel for far too long. What uh, which church is that? Yeah,
1: this this church is Christ Church, Spitalfields. And what's amazing about it is that it really dominates the skyline. It it really does dominate the skyline. And um, it, the church was built in the 1720s, designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor, a very evident... oh, that's a Hawksmoor. Yes, it's a Hawksmoor church. And um, and of course, for many years you could say it was the most unloved church in London because, like, um, when the French Huguenots were here, they wanted to build their own chapels. When the uh, Jewish community was here they had their synagogues, the Muslim community you know wanted mosques and in fact after the Second World War when it had been quite badly damaged. Um, there were thoughts of really you know deconsecrating it and demolishing it. But a group of people uh, banded together and formed the Friends of Christ Church and um, it's since obviously been saved. It's been beautifully renovated and has benefited from the regeneration of this area because now uh, this area is much more residential than it had been for many many years and uh, you know if you come on a on a Saturday you might be lucky enough to see a wedding. It's also one of the venues for Spitalfields Music Festival. One of the byproducts of the campaign to save the church um, is Spitalfields Music Festival, which happens twice a year here, uh, in June and in December. And um, it's a beautiful music festival, first and foremost. And they use not just Christchurch, but other venues around the, um, around the area, like the Church of St. Leonard's Shoreditch, for instance. You know, it, gives, it gives people an opportunity to hear music, not necessarily... Um, just classical music, a lot of uh, contemporary music, and it's not just religious music, you know, um, but to hear it in venues that they might not otherwise have ever had a chance to visit. Over to your, um, your right hand side, you can see the London Fruit Exchange and the London Wool Exchange. And these are now offices, but um, you know, when the uh, Spitalfields Fruit and Vegetable Market was operating here, uh, that's where all the auctions were done, you know, for the, for the fruits and vegetables.
3: I've heard that whilst they're keeping the facade, the building behind that is going to be demolished, and uh, some sort of shopping centre is going to be s- s- snuck in there.
1: Yes, we we hear this. We hear the same things. There, there was an a, there was a big campaign to save the fascia. I mean, it, it, there was uh, there were talks of the building not lasting at all. But fortunately, the building itself has been saved. We're just on the corner of Brushfield Street and um, Commercial Street, and of course, it's an oft-told phrase in London that you should always look up, you know, because you know you never know what you might miss, a lovely top of a building but in Stittlefields you should also look down and if you look down at your feet you'll see a lovely, it looks like a pretend manhole cover but really it's a, a, a metal roundel and um London Broadbent Tower Hamlets, uh, some years ago, I think it was 1995, commissioned um, a number of roundels to commemorate the uh, heritage and the history of the area. So when you're in this area of Spitalfields, keep looking down. Most of the roundels have disappeared now, but you've probably still got about a dozen or so to find. It's a great thing to see, you know, who can find more. And this one, um, just by the corner of Spitalfields, the old Spitalfields market, It's apples and pears, and of course it represents the fruit and vegetable market. So as as you walk along, remember, look up and look down, and be careful of your feet.
3: We're turning left. We're going down Commercial Street. And now we're at the traffic lights. There's no green man. What is Rachel Kolsky going to do? (laughs) Yet again, straight across. with a flagrant disregard for her own personal safety. (laughs) Getting a lot of uh, theatrical wiping of the brow here. We've made it to the central island. I'm sure this isn't what you tuned in for though.
1: Turn right into a delightful little enclave called Puma Court, and at the end, is one of my favourite sights of London. Not just in the Jewish East End, but in London as a whole. I love this little little, um, uh, alleyway. Um, I'll keep looking down, because I might see a ramble with uh, little boys and girls playing, or little tops. uh, What is it? uh, A spinning top. And it represents the fact that this was a safe place for children to play many, many years ago. Still safe today. There it is, spinning tops. And at the end, you have the sign... H. Suskin Textiles Limited, Wilkes Street. And uh, what we've done now is we've arrived at one of the most delightful enclaves. Um, anywhere in London, uh, I think. It's three little streets. I do not know how they've survived. It's Princelet Street, Fournier Street, and they're linked by Wiltz Street. And when you think that London, particularly East London, was uh, affected by the Zeppelins of the First World War, the Blitz of the Second World War, what we called slum clearance post-Second World War, and obviously 1980s uh, redevelopment, um, it's a miracle that these little streets have survived. Just stand here and take a look around you. You can see the houses are all fairly similar, they were typically built in the early 18th century um, most of them have been beautifully renovated uh, since um, and the sign of H Suskin is a reminder that this was the centre for a time of the Jewish East and very much the centre of the, the tailoring trade as well There would have been a time when, you know, many, many buildings here, which were being used as tailoring uh, workshops, would have had signs like that outside, you know, sort of extolling the the name of the business, the phone number, what they did. And there would have been hanging signs as well. And in fact, coming out of uh, the building of H. Suskin, above the door where you can see a nice portrait of Charles Dickens at the moment, that's street art, by the way. And whenever one mentions street art, you never know if it's going to be there the next day, let alone, you know, the next month or year. But currently, as I speak, Charles, Dickens is on that door and there's a very evil looking spike coming out of the ivy and that's where the hanging sign of H. Suskin used to be I've been taking photographs of it over the years because it got more and more bedraggled and one day about a year or so ago I came along and it had gone anyway there was an exhibition in the building of Russian Prison tattoos, and I called them up and said, What have you done? What have you done with the hanging sign? Anyway, it's in safe storage, and they're uh, trying to raise funds to renovate it. So it'll be come back as a little bit of heritage of the Jewish East End. And um, also, as well as signs, extolling the, the names of the businesses here, there would have been plates next door to all the front doors. Today, the front doors are beautifully renovated, new fan lights above the door, beautiful brass um, doorknobs. But you know, not so long ago, probably. You know, probably up to the 19s, late 1960s, you would have had um, signs, you know, saying "trouser hands wanted," "buttonhole makers wanted," "no vacancies," and um, all of those have, have disappeared. Um, H. Suskin, I should say, was a real was a real company was a real company. Anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to um, turn left and then right into um, a street called Princelet Street. Okay.
3: Very quiet here, even though it's the middle of the day. And now, as we turn into Princelet Street, we start to see one or two cappuccinos popping up. And I think you begin to get the sense that you're in the trendier part of town now. The buildings a lot better cared for down the street.
1: We're in um, one of my favourite streets of London, Princelet Street. Um, If you stand and look up towards Wilk Street, you get... again one of my favourite views you can see the beautiful houses built in the early 18th century as I mentioned Um, at the top of each house you can see windows in the attics because uh, the first people that typically lived in these houses were the French Huguenots who came over in the late 17th century and a lot of them were wealthy silk merchants, not everybody was wealthy but a lot of them were wealthy uh, silk merchants and they lived a family to a house but where there were weavers in a house you needed as much light as possible for your looms, you know no electricity no street lighting so they put these windows right at the top of the house at the Front and the back to allow as much natural light in as possible, and if you stand here um, it's a good position to stand is um, opposite number eleven and i 'll tell you why um, when we walk a little bit further up the street, because this is the, the perfect view, um, when the French Huguenots left. Uh, left the area, Uh, the area became quite Irish in character a lot of Irish people came to live here and then uh, as the Irish moved on or moved further north up Brick Lane to, to Bethnal Green, when the Jewish community arrived, this was where they came to live but they couldn't afford a house for family and so when you look at these beautiful homes today they're either homes or um, businesses uh, nowadays and um, this would be where jewish families live maybe four or five families to a house they live literally in one room or, or two rooms and as you stand here today one really must use uh, your imagination uh, to bring that bring that to mind
3: yes you can really feel it teeming in on you when you think about it like that there's an awful lot of windows which means an awful lot of rooms which means an awful lot of people in this one street
1: and um, now we've looked at the view up to Wilkes Street from outside number 11 we're just going to move a little bit further down Prince Street and stop outside opposite number 19
3: and we're going to pass a blue plaque there to Miriam Moses I see, social reformer and first woman mayor of Stepney in 31 to 32 born here in 1886 so this is very much the period we're talking about
1: we're now standing still on Princeton Street, opposite number 19, and if you look at the same view up Wilkes Street, that's the reason I ask you to look when you're outside number 11, because now you can see the big glassy offices of the city encroaching upon uh, this beautiful, beautiful enclave. You can also see from here a little reminder of the Jewish East End um, on the uh, doorpost of number 20. And if you look um, at the doorpost, you'll see a small um, container. It's in on the right-hand doorpost. It's... Uh, uh, fixed on a slant in the top third, and that is known as a mezuzah. And what it is, it's a case that contains handwritten parchment um, with the words from the five books of Moses, uh, uh, from Deuteronomy, that um, uh, instructs Jewish people to put a sign upon their doorposts of their house. And so uh, there would have been a time when in this area almost every uh, front door would have had a mezuzah on it, indicating there was a Jewish house. And what I think is lovely is the gentleman who, who bought this house He's not Jewish himself, but when he bought the house, the mezuzah was still was still there, and um, and I I always thank him I always thank him when I stand outside his house uh, for not for not taking it away because it's a lovely lovely reminder of of what uh, of what these houses would have looked like when this was the Jewish East End. So. But opposite, you've got two very important buildings uh, for the Jewish community here in, uh, in uh, Princeton Street. Number 17 um, has a plaque that's blue on it commemorating the birthplace of Miriam Moses. And um, it has to be said that in an area of great poverty, a lot of people came to the East End um, and did a lot of what we call good, you know, great philanthropists, whether they helped with health, housing, education, maternity care. But most of them came from outside of the East End. Miriam Moses was East End born and bred, and she never left the East End. And the plaque commemorates the fact that this is her birthplace and that she was the first female mayor of the London Borough of Stepney. Of course, we're now in the London Borough of Tower Hamlets, which was formed in 1965 from Stepney, Poplar and Bethnal Green. However, if you meet anybody in the Jewish world, particularly those that knew Maria Moses, they do not say to you, Oh, Miriam Moses, what an amazing lady. She was the first female mayor of the London Borough of Stepney. They don't say that because her politics and that element wasn't really what was important to them. She was remembered for being a social worker, for being absolutely loyal to her community here, and she set up in the 1920s the Brady Street Girls Club. And um, she was committed to the girls of the area. She raised money so that a purpose built centre could be built in the 1930s, and it was opened by the then Duchess of York. It became Queen Queen Elizabeth, and that's at the top of Hanbury Street, and it's still called the Brady Centre today. Although the um, the Brady Centre for the Jewish community uh, has long since long since gone, um, she didn't just work within the Jewish community in the uh, community at large during the Second World War. She was head of the Shelter Committee for Stepney and made sure that uh, local people got decent uh, shelter uh, provision. Um, she also sat on the juvenile court at, the, uh, at Toynbee Hall. So for as many people that I meet who absolutely adored her, I've also met a lot of people who were quite you know, she was a bit of a dragon I think, I think sometimes as well. Um, the house was bought in the 1980s by the Spitalfields Historic Housing Trust who bought up a lot of properties here to ensure they were sold on to People who would love and respect the the buildings, because after the Jewish businesses went in the late sixties, probably by nineteen seventy, all the Jewish businesses had gone had gone here.
3: Um, So, what caused that?
1: What what happened was that in the interwar years nineteen twenties nineteen thirties there was a big exodus of the Jewish community from the Jewish East End. Basically, you the tube lines took you to the suburbs. There was a lot of Affordable housing along those tube lines. So I'm talking the Northern Line to uh, beyond Golders Green to Hendon, etc., and then the Central Line into Ilford, Gants Hill, Newbury Park. And you know, it's very difficult for people to understand and comprehend today, but you could be born and brought up in the East End, get married and move from your family home which might have just been a couple of rooms and move to a semi-detached suburban house in the suburbs so in the interwar years the Jewish community moved residentially away from here but their businesses remained so um, all the facilities they need if you come and work here during the day you might want a nice bagel smoked salmon dropped herring if you were orthodox you'd want um, a synagogue to pray so all the facilities that the Jewish community needs remained in the East End for as long as the businesses were here as well and by the 1960s, i use a cut-off point of 1970, there are people that might contest that, but I'll use 1970, um, what had happened was the, the business owners had encouraged their children to become doctors, dentists, accountants, you know, didn't go in the family business. Some family businesses died a natural death. But more importantly, you knew there were lots of new uh, light industrial parks opening up in the suburbs, so instead of, you know, running your your business from a you know a three or four story house going up and down rickety stairs with big bales of material and whatever why not go to a purpose built industrial estate so those were the three main reasons that um the businesses um, moved out but it followed a residential exodus as much as, as much as anything else and the buildings here were quite decrepit very run down, they'd been used as, as workshops and warehouses and so the Spitalfields Historic Housing Trust bought some up so they could sell them on to those that would respect the architecture other people moved in who loved architecture anyway and, um, and um, other people that moved in were artists because where those windows were at the top of the buildings were, were almost purpose built uh, studios so the trust bought number 17, that was all very exciting because it was Mary Moses' home and they also built number 19, the building you can see opposite which has like a cream and brown ground floor and today this building probably more than any b- other building in Spitalfields has probably gone into the folklore of uh, the Spitalfields and Jewish East End story um, it was built in uh, around 1718 and in around 17, uh, 1869, 1870 a synagogue was built over the back garden and a long thin narrow synagogue with uh, fan lights to allow natural light in because there was no electric light then and it was one as i mentioned of maybe 65 synagogues in the area and nobody really gave it any thought the community um, prayed there etc etc and then gradually you know uh, all these synagogues started to close down particularly in the 60s when the jewish community uh, was was leaving and um, it was closed up had a caretaker had a a young man who was allowed to live in the attic. And it's since gone into folklore because when the Trust bought it in 1983, they walked in to see what they'd bought and they saw the synagogue intact. It was like Miss Havisham's room in Great Expectations, all cobwebby and dusty. And an amazing, uh, really amazing to find. And then upstairs there was a room which was quite uh, squalid and uh, that's when the story of David Rudinsky came to people's minds and that's probably a story, a story in itself but there's a lovely book written by um, one of the writers who first wrote about the house called Ian Sinclair very well-known uh, writer about London and then he wrote with a lady called Rachel Lichtenstein who came along some years later in 1991 uh, to, um, to come and visit the synagogue she felt her, she thought her grandparents had been married here and the two of them teamed up to write this book called Rudinsky's Room so if you want to know more more about 19 Princelet Street, um, I do suggest you read the book. It's a very good read. And the building today is owned by a trust and it's open uh, to the public on special occasions. So look out in listings um, for when you can go and visit when it's open free of charge.
3: And I think here in Princeton Street, that's where our tour, which has now come up to the modern day, uh, must close. And I'd, I'd like to thank you, Rachel. That's a fantastic tour. And, what, what a lot. And, and there's so many so many little things that you can see and not understand what the, the history is of them or the meaning of them. Again, a reminder where people can find out more about your tours and uh, sign up for them.
1: Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, my name's Rachel Kolsky and I run Go London Tours and the website is www.golondontours.com.
3: Good golly, that lady is full of beans. That's Rachel Kolsky, fantastic Rachel Kolsky. We finished that report off-air with Rachel, uh, very anxious that she'd barely scratched the surface of the area and that she had plenty more to tell, and I certainly believe that to be true. Do have a look at her site and see if there isn't a tour there that might tickle your fancy. The answers, finally, to this week's quiz... Monday the 13th of August uh, 77 we were looking for the group that tried to stop the National Front it was of course the Socialist Workers Party. Uh, Second question this is a real toughie. Uh, Tuesday let's see how you did. Tuesday the 14th of August 1821 it was a funeral procession that brought about two deaths in London whose was it? Well this is quite extraordinary it was the funeral procession of Queen Caroline, that's the wife of George IV and um, here's what happened the procession was making its way through London en route to Harwich and a ship that would carry her body to Germany for burial. The originally prescribed route had deliberately avoided central London but huge numbers of demonstrators had blocked all other viable routes and forced (sighs) the procession to travel through the city. During the subsequent disturbances and rioting as crowds attempted to reroute the procession, many soldiers and civilians were hurt and two were killed. Incredible. Can you imagine that? Wednesday We wanted the year that uh, Princess Anne was born. It was 1950. Thursday, the 16th of August 2001, we were after the star witness here who turned the case against Paul Burrell around. It was only the Queen. Yes, H.M. the Queen. Friday, finally, the 17th of August 1896, a woman called Bridget Driscoll became the first reported person to be killed by a motor car and it happened in Crystal Palace, south-east London. Witnesses later described the car as travelling at a reckless pace when it hit Mrs Driscoll. Uh, If you fancy a bonus question, what speed do you think the car was doing? It was doing a reckless four miles per hour. Outrageous. You see, speed kills. Stay safe.
2: Here she stands
3: You've been listening to Londonist Out Loud. My thanks for this week to Rachel Kolsky. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
2: Inch by inch Waiting for the river's care Straining for the blue waves Calling from the shore Palace of the Open Sea